weeks talking about family. Here's where I'm going next week. So this is a precursor. Next week, we're going to do the days of Noah. I've had several people lately ask me, do I feel like we're at the end? Do I feel like this is the end of the world? Or do I think Jesus is coming back soon? And so I thought, well, why not just dive into it? I've never taught a series on the days of Noah, but we're going to dive into it. And for those of you questioning, that is Noah. He took a selfie back then. And uh, he, looks, he looks a little haggard, but that was after he got off the boat with all his kids. <laughs> That's exactly what I would look like if I was locked up with my kids on a boat for a year. I'd be like, dear God in heaven. <laughs> but it'll be fun. We'll have good. We're going to dig it out and I hope to do it. It'll challenge you. So that's going to be coming next week. But this week we're, we were in a series called Family. This is week 12. And I've really been asking myself how to end. And so I put the word kids there, but if I'm not careful in the disclaimer, you can check out real quickly. You can already be a grandparent and have raised your kids like, okay, well, this isn't going to be for me. Or maybe you're not even married or you don't have children on the way. Uh, but I would like to say disclaimer, when, when I say the word kids, I mean that regardless of who you are in this building, if we don't live it well, it won't be here in the next generation. We, we can be on this corner and thank God for mom and dad on the front row that in 1990 they moved here and started this church in 1990, 2012, they passed the baton to Robin and I. I'm 58 years old and there will come a day where I will have to pass the baton to somebody to hopefully keep the thing running. But I hope we're all wise enough to know that if we don't do our job well when it's our time, when this is our shift, this is what is on our life and our calling. If we don't do it well and pass the baton, this nice 12 acres of land that once represented the things of God can easily become a QT, where you just stop off and get coffee and fill your car up. Somebody has already approached us in the past about wanting to buy the property to put a gas station here. So it could be really simple to just say, hey, it's great for me right now. I love the church. I love being here. I hope you love my messages. I always enjoy coming talking about God. But in the end, if we don't capture the generation behind us, if there's nobody to pass the baton to, if there's nobody to take your seat, if there's nobody to fill your shoes, then we lose. And what used to be so profoundly a place where people come and experience God and, and meet God's people just becomes a bypass. So. What I want to share with you today, maybe perhaps instead of just thinking kids, it's how do we, how do we pass the legacy of Jesus on to the next generation? Because I will say this, one of the apologies I think should maybe be discussed is that in many churches today, we've, we've promoted all the young people on the stage, the hip, cool, skinny jeans, you know, 20, 25 year old to present ourselves as real hip to the generation while we've shut down all the mothers and fathers of the faith. But I want to say something to you, mom and dad, older. If you're 55 and older, 60 and older, your time is not up. The Bible charges you to be the mothers and fathers of a generation, to pour into them the things of God, to let them know the realities of God, to let them know what the Lord has done for you so that you can carry the legacy on. There's something very inspiring when you're a young person and you watch an older person live it. It, it inspires me on the front row sits Joe and Angelica and then on the opposite side sit my mother and father and between them is about a 30 year span, three decades of life sitting on a front row. It inspires me to know that uh, a generation is coming, but what I would hope, and, and I say this to my mother and dad quite often, and often to Ann and, and different ones in the building that I know who have already arrived, they've been there, and by arrived, I mean they've, they've paid their dues, they have their scars, they've tried, but they still serve the Lord, they still press into Him. It's inspiring for a young person. It's inspiring when you're 20 or 30 and you see somebody 90 and 80 and go, God, they made it. They're still married. They still love the Lord. They don't hate each other. They don't hate God. They don't hate the church. And you know they earned some scars along the way. So when I say kids, 
I mean that everybody in the room has a responsibility to this next generation and how we communicate God to the next generation of whether we'll inspire them to either press in and know God or whether we'll push them away and go, I don't want anything to do with those weird religious people. And it's our duty to pass this on. Here's a scripture that talks about the first kids in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. God shows up to the very first children that we know from Scripture. They're at least recorded children in Scripture, Cain and Abel. And God shows up to Cain and says, Why are you so angry? Genesis 4, 6, the Lord asked him. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, and anytime God says, Watch out, what should we do? Watch out. Yeah, God's like, Watch out. And I'm like, Oh God, this is the Creator telling me to watch out. So I better watch out. And then he intimates something. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to control you. In other words, God is letting us know that even though life goes on, Adam and Eve had children, there's a war going on. God is letting humans know that you're not here alone. There is a war going on. There is a battle going on that's trying to control you to keep my life and my name from going forward. It's trying to shut you down. Paul will say it this way, very familiar if you're a Christian. Ephesians 6, he says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on all of God's armor so you'll be able to stand against. And then this phrase, he says, you'll be able to stand against the strategies of the devil. I, you know, I was raised Pentecostal, so there's the whole, are there demons? Do you believe in demons? Do people have demons? But we'll leave that there. My answer is, of course, the Bible does, so I lean to it. But he picks up a word that they're strategies of the devil, meaning it might not have to be spirits and demons. It can just be life itself. It can be people. It can be events. It can be circumstances. Anything, any strategy that can trip you up, any strategy that can get you off of thinking of the will of God, any thing that will work and the strategy is different for all of us some of us the strategy is you're irritated and frustrated sometimes the strategy is nobody talked to me the preacher didn't call me the pastor hurt me I don't like religious people Christians weird me out whatever the strategy would be he'll use it against you he goes on to say this for we're not fighting against you this is pretty familiar we're not fighting against flesh and blood but evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world and mighty powers of the dark world. It almost sounds like we're watching some kind of Marvel comic. Unseen world, dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So my question that rose in my heart over the last several weeks, knowing I would kind of land the plane today, how do you raise godly kids in a dark world? When everything in that world seemingly set against you, you may have said things like, well, my God, when it rains, it pours. Man, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. Whatever it may be, I think we would all know that there are times that no matter how much we love God, it feels like everything's against us. People, life, money, politics, whatever. But when I ask the question, how do you raise godly kids in a dark world? I would like to tweak your thought just a minute. How do we transfer the knowing God to the next generation? Like that's the real key. How do I transfer God to the next generation? There's several brand new moms in our family. Well, actually a lot here. There's a lot of new parents here. How do we transfer God to our children? How do we get them to want the God that we believe in? Is it just by luck? Is it just by, well, you know, kind of everybody grows up and chooses what they want? Or can we force it on them? I mean, if we forced it on them, would that not be considered a cult? And so there's, the, there's this extreme from we force God on them to uh, we just let them figure it out on their own. This woke progressive ideology versus this very cult-like religion. And you ask, how do we do this? How do I get my children to choose the very God that I say is real if they've never even seen him? I've never even seen him. He's quote unseen, but I believe in him. And I have this deep sense of belief that there is a, a being out there who's the creator, who, who, who has given him his life to us so that we can know him. Like I believe that. 
but I have to give that over to my children. And I'm, you know, and then you get the whole difference between, well, you raise your kids to know Santa Claus and he's fake. And so you, you figure out God's probably fake, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just trying to take this concept of God. Uh, one of the, <laughs> I'm teaching the students on Wednesday now for the summer. And one of the students asked me last week, they said, they said, you got to explain God to me. Like, how has he never had a birthday? He's never been born. He doesn't have parents. And I'm like, God, I wish I didn't teach students. How does Jesus? <laughs> right? like, oh God, I don't even know myself. Hang on a minute. Let me figure that out. Like, but the reality is if a human can answer everything there is about God, then is he really God? Because there has to be something about him, this God, that would make us go, I don't know. And then that brings faith into it. And then it's weird, right? So I told her, show up and I'll try to figure it out. <laughs> but I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a generation behind us that's hurting. They're hurting. They come from broken homes. What did we say? 50 plus, 57% of all marriages end in divorce. They come from brokenness. Their propaganda is shoved down their throat every single day. From propaganda, I'm talking about whether it's political or whether it's psychological or, or whether it's spiritual. Every single day, you're, you're, the, the next generation is just being bombarded with how to think and how to reason, told how to reason. Who would have ever thought we would be in a generation where the very kids we're raising are struggling at age four to become a different gender than what they were born in and that medical science would afford them to be able to do that at age six. And yet here we sit and go, well, let's not be too mad because what we do know when, when the church sits silent, people will find other answers. If we don't stand up and say, hey, I think we have a little bit of hope for you here. I think we may have some answers. If the church doesn't become bold, then why are we so ticked off that the world goes after them? We, we have to realize, can we answer questions to a dark world? And the worst thing to do as a Christian is to just sit there and just point fingers at the dark world. It's dark. It's evil. Run. That doesn't work. Because just sitting here telling everybody how dark and evil the world is, it doesn't inspire kids to go, well, let me buy into God then. It has to be real. It has to have some reality to it. It has to have meaning beyond a moment. It has to carry weight. So the issue really becomes when I say we're going to talk about kids is... Let's leave them over here and let's ask the deeper question, is God real to the adults in the room? Because I, I saw a statistic this week that said if the dad, the father figure in the home serves God, there's a 93% chance that the children will follow suit. And if the father doesn't follow God, it drops statistically, I mean, just like amazingly down below 40%. Just off a of man being able to press forward and say, I know God. So what I would like to do is tweak in your thinking, how do we make a God known to the point that it makes the next generation jealous. Because if I'm honest, and it's, you know, not like I lie, but I mean, if I'm just gonna gut level it here, there's a lot about American church I look at the day that doesn't inspire me to be jealous for God. I was like, there's nothing about this inspires me to know God. We can argue and split churches and argue about all the things we can argue about in religion. And, and, and you wonder why this younger generation is looking at us going, that's not what I want. So they're tapping out. What does the world call it? Deconstructing. They're, they're leaving church in the droves. I don't need, they, they still want God. They just don't want God like this. They're still pressing into God, going places. But, but, but this thing called community is... And so can we transfer that? So I would ask you as we get into this today, is, is God so known in your life that it, you're making him jealous to the next generation? When they look at you, do they think whatever you got, I want it? Because it's inspiring to me. So I'd like to start here with this scripture and then we're gonna 
I'll kind of tell you where I'm going and we'll just funnel it down. Here's a scripture in Deuteronomy. Moses is talking to the children of Israel. They've come through a lot of seasoned stuff and good and bad and ugly. And he begins talking to him in verse 35 of Deuteronomy 4. He showed you, talking about God, he showed you these things so you would know that the Lord is God and there's no other. Verse 36, he let you hear his voice from heaven so he can instruct you. And he let you see his great fire here on the earth so he could speak to you from it. I love what he says because he, he, it tells me something about God when he said, God showed you things so you could know. And it's the baseline that God just wants to be known. He just wants to be known. Now the challenge with God wanting to be known is that the way we can present that, we can present it to where they don't really want to know him at all. Because what we'll say, well, the way you know God is to read your Bible, but there's a lot of people who read their Bible who never know him. Well, you just should go to church. I mean, everybody needs a good church to go to, but let's be honest, there's a lot of good church going people that don't know God. Their life is no different whatsoever. Well, I tell you what, you just need to get on a team and get in a group and get in a small group. But there's a lot of people who serve on teams and open doors and get in small groups who, who do all of that. They're doing all the duties, but they don't really know God. Like there's no intimate knowing of God. They're just checking the box. They do a devotion, but, it, but it's just to check the box that my devotion was done with my coffee so I feel good about myself. But to really know the creator of the world. To a point that it would make other people jealous. There's a lot of people who can quote scripture, but, but it doesn't make the other people jealous to know God. And so the question becomes, here's what's so strange. is how does a God who's creator make himself known when there's no Bible? Because long before we get what we call our Bible, God is trying to be known. So God can't say, hey, here's how we're going to be known. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. There was no Genesis 1-1. Hey, you should just know John 3-16 and read that every day and confess it. And then there was nothing to read or confess because there was nothing written. It was a being that was walking with humans trying to be known by those humans. There was no history written of it. It was just God was in the mix of human beings and interacting with them. And in the weirdest and strangest of ways, people started writing down stories and those stories began to get communicated. And then in the weirdest of ways, those stories got compacted into a bigger story and then they got put into 66 books and then we called it the Bible. And then we say, here's this thing we call the Bible and that's how you know God. But the reality is, okay, great. So if I get a Bible, I can know God. There's, there's Bibles on every shelf in, in, in the South. We're the Bible belt of the country. And people are getting murdered every day and marriages are broken and meth addicts and jails are filled with people. But you go into every house and there'll be a Bible. So is it the Bible of how God wants to be known? Because God was being known long before 330-something A.D. when we started trying to put it all together in something we call our Bible into in beautiful 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And if I'm not careful, the Bible becomes a religious devotional book. It has no meaning. It's just a devotion. Mother told me to read it. Grandmama told me to do it. I do it every morning so that I have a good start to my day. You can just push the Bible away and sit down with any good book and do what a book would say and have a better day. It doesn't even have to be the Bible. It can just be how to, how to have a happy marriage and read that and have a happy marriage. So the Bible has to carry something more weighty because what Christians teach is it's 66 books of the breath of God and the will of God written down by humans so we could know God. That's what's so profound. So as I thought about how, how do we adults make the next generation jealous to know him? Because they didn't have the Bible when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, they didn't have a Bible. They couldn't walk in the house and go, all right, now let's sit down and read Ephesians. There was no Ephesians. 
Hey, let's sit down and read the Gospel of John. That's the best place to start. There was no Gospel of John. They had to have something within them that made somebody else jealous for a living God. And so the Bible sits, even Jesus, I'm not ditching the Bible, I read it and it's the inerrant word of God, so let me clarify that. All right, I don't want you saying, oh God, he doesn't love the word. I believe the word is the, <laughs> I believe the word is the inspired and errant word of God. But it is the mind of God pinned down by humans so that I can know God. Not just so I can quote a verse. And stomp my foot at the devil. Devil, the Bible says here. And the devil's like, ooh, you quote the Bible, huh? He'll quote it right back to you. He probably knows it better than most of us. It doesn't really scare him. But what does threaten him is when someone knows God. Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? Like there's something about this word known And so what I would like to present to you today is I think there's a lot of Christian families that are Christian, but the legacy of their home is that God is not known. And to all you new parents and young parents, I would say the challenge is not whether your kid is going to get all A's and become a sports enthusiast and get contracts to the world and and become the valedictorian of their school Those are great things, but it's after they move out of your house, will you have lived in such a way that you've made them jealous for the God that you know? Because if our children accomplish everything but God, then we lose the legacy going forward. So here's what I've attempted to do. I've never taught this before, so my mind, I'm trying to work it out as I'm going. I believe it, but to put it together logically to presented is different. And I've I've had a while to think about it. But I've asked myself, how do I take the God of the Bible that's just a bunch of archaic stories written to teach me about God, the gospels that teach me about Jesus, the rest of the Bible that teaches me how to flesh it out. What about that 66 books is there that could teach me how to live this thing and know God. Because the beautiful thing about the Bible is it's, it's a beginning Genesis and an end revelation and then parsed in the middle are just weird stories. The earth eats people, babies are killed, whales swallow people, donkeys talk, birds bring you food, people walk on water, demons appear, dead people show up, dead people get up. As you just read it, it's like, this is, this is like DC comic kind of stuff. This is weird. And, and especially if you, the worst thing to do is like dive in in the middle and try to figure it out. Cause I, dude, I started reading in, in like, like the Chronicles, they're killing babies. I'm like, yeah, don't start there, man. That is not the place. <laughs> you don't want to start in Joshua either. Cause they're murdering everybody in the city. They're just babies and all man, kill them all. Like, don't start there. You're going to wig out, you know? So, so the thing about it is, it's this compilation of all of this, the best way I could define it. Is God wants to be known and he gave us 66 books of a compilation of stories in the weirdest of ways pinned by his mind through the hand of humans because he's going to show you how people know me in the journey. So as I'm reading about David and going, Woo, King David, man, we all need to be a King David. It's not put in there so I can be like King David. King David is put in there so I can see how did this man who had no Holy Spirit, no Bible, no nothing, how did he serve God? And when I see Samson who had no seminary training, no nothing, just a bunch of long hair, how did he serve God? Because every story is trying to make a the best way I could put it is like if God is a diamond in every facet is how you look at it. Every story from Genesis to Revelation is a side of the diamond to show me the beauty of God. I need it all to see everything. I need a little bit. So what I've attempted to do, this will scare you, is go through all 66 books of the Bible today. 
we'll be out of here by about five. <laughs> I'll get you out, I promise. I won't do that to you. But, but my goal is to, is to take a God that was not known and he worked himself with humans from what we would believe Adam to the present. And he was smart enough to record that down by having humans write about it so we could go back and read the stories of how other humans know him. And it leads me to this, whether we like it or not, your life is a story of a facet of God. And left to yourself, if, if it's just me and Joe, and me and Joe are going to be, and we're like, just watch us, you will get a very limited picture of God just looking at two men try to work it out. But if I get the whole room together called local church, and I say, let's all talk about how we've met God along the way. And everybody starts telling a story, and God gets bigger and bigger with every story. So don't believe this lie, you can just sit around by yourself. You need all the stories to get the vastness of the beauty of God. Oh my God, he can heal addicts. He can restore marriages. What? He can, oh God, he's huge. So let's go through it. I'm going to take you through the 66 books. The first five books are the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It is some of the most fascinating reading. You'll find out about the beginning of the world. You'll find out how God puts them all into tribes. You'll find out how God delivered them and how God blew up stuff. And I mean, just crazy stories. You read it and it's almost like, that's just mind-blowing. But the first five books that we call our Bible, remember, it's God having to work with humans to make himself known. And while he's making himself known, nobody's really writing it down. They're living it out. And then it took somebody to come and write it all down for us. But as they're going through it and we're reading, well, Genesis 6 is Noah. There was nobody going, all right, Genesis 6, 1, let me write down Noah. That wasn't happening. Noah was just living it out. And then somebody penned the story for us. So what I want you to start thinking is as you read the Bible, it's the interaction of God within humanity that we could know something about his character while he's working with humanity. So what would that tell me as a parent? I need to pass something down. I want my children to know the unknown God. I want them to know him. How did God make himself known to people? Well, this is what we would teach. We teach our children the certainty of right and wrong measured by the will of God. And yet we have a generation in front of us, there is no right and wrong anymore. Just try to tell somebody they're wrong. You'll trigger them. You'll get sued. There is no right and wrong. But the beauty of the first five books of the Bible, God is absolute. There is right and wrong. As a matter of fact, don't murder. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. I mean, it's very black and white. It's very much right and wrong, but right and wrong is determined by the will of God. Right and wrong is not determined by society. Right and wrong is not determined by your feelings. Right and wrong is not determined by what you think is right or wrong. Right and wrong is determined by the will of God, and that's what we have to hold to. Well, everybody's just transgendering and changing their gender. Good, that's great. Let them trans, let them move. This is America, go for it. But if we're going to have a legacy of Jesus, there has to be something that comes in and says, I can't apologize for having what I believe is right and what I believe is wrong. And I have to do that, not according to the will of grandmama, not according to the will of white people, not according to the will of black people or Hispanic people or any other people, but I have to define right and wrong by the will of God. And that may hurt my feelings, I gotta get over it. That may make me have to change, I have to get over it. That may make me have to go, I don't like that. Well good, it's not you, it's God. We have to just go to God and go, forgive us Lord. But what we're doing is we're raising a generation where parents are like, well, just whatever you feel. I don't want to crush their little feelings. I'm like, I know, I'm not talking about beating and spanking them, but I'm talking about if you ever want to watch how frustrated you can get as a parent, have a discussion about right and wrong with a three-year-old. Oh my Lord. Well, why? Because I, this, is, this is the line. Because I said so. Every parent's used it because I said so. 
In other words, you're too dumb to get it. I just said so. <laughs> because I said so. So I think there's something about God that there is an aspect of the creator where we go, look, I don't like that, but you said so. So, okay. I may not like it. The generation I'm in may not like it. They, they may not like that you created male and female. I get it. They may not like that it's a man and a woman that marries. I get it. I have a generation that thinks different. But, but I have to stick to the will of God. So the greatest thing you can do as a parent is to begin to teach the child. Because mom and dad, I'll say this to you. This is a little bit of pressure. But you are the first part of God they will ever know is mom and dad. Before they ever know the eternal God that created it, they're going to know God through you. They're going to look at how you do and how you, how you act, and they're going to connect God through you. So, so the likelihood of how I treat Robin and how Robin and I live our life and, and what we present is we have to present in our family that, hey, the biggest thing is not what daddy wants or mama wants, it's what God wants. And I have to build this kind of legacy. Even if your children are already grown with their grandchildren, you can teach them, hey, it's not just what grandmama or granddaddy wants. Let us tell you some stories of how we learned how to follow God off what he wants. The next are the historical books. They're great reading. You'll find a lot of murders, deaths, heads get chopped off, bodies get blown up. You find prostitutes and hookers and all kind of craziness in this reading. But, but as you read it now, it's, it's beautiful for you, like the way God did it. He did it. Nice little books, Joshua, Judges. But again, as you read it, I need you to see that it's God working in people, trying to be known. So his first five books is just, hey, I'm in charge. It's my way. It's the will of God. If you'll submit to my will, it'll go well. But then the historical books begin to introduce us to people who are learning to walk it out. They're learning to obey. They have some good, bad, and ugly. But they're learning to walk out this life of God. They're learning to follow him when God says, go build the wall. It's like, I don't want to go build the wall. When they're about Esther, when they're about to kill your entire generation, and God decides to use you. And so if we want our kids to know God, I can't just bark orders at them. I can't just go, well, the Bible says, and the Bible, that's good for about age one to four. The Bible says, the Bible says. But there's something powerful when a parent quits pointing fingers going, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and that parent begins to go, hey, just watch me walk it out. In other words, I will become the chapter and verse for you. You can watch my life and see God in me because there's a lot of parents that quote the Bible, make their kid go read the Bible, do your devotion in the Bible, but they never see God in the journey of the family. Dad's dropping up bombs, slamming things, cussing. Parents are fighting. There's chaos in the home. We're just going to go to church. And we go to church and nothing changes except we're all mad at each other. Because beyond just going to church and quoting verses, God has to be real in the journey. And I wrote this down. We have to teach them stories of God's power in the journey. There's something profound to grow up in a family where, that believes the Bible, but then they show you the reality working in their life. And I will say this, I, I, I don't know a lot of chapter verse in the Bible, but I can tell you one thing, you will not talk me out of the stories I have with God. You may say, well, I disagree with the Bible. Okay, great. Okay, perfect. But you can't disagree with the stories I have. My own testimony of when God showed up in my life, in my journey. I do this, I don't know for some of you that may, but we have a text thread with all the girls. It's a family text thread. What that means is all day long they're texting each other and occasionally I jump in and go, yo. And so <laughs> they're just talking with each other all the time. But I, I often do my best to let my daughters know when God does something for their father in the journey. And they'll talk back, wow, dad, cool, dad, awesome, dad. But what I want them to know is God's not just real in the Bible. He's real in my journey. 
I told you last week, I, I had some things going on that I was praying for, and I was praying about whether to come here, I had a guest speaker, or whether to go to another church. And so I, I prayed about it, weird, right? But I just said, God, I want to obey. And I felt the Lord told me, I want you and Robin to go into Atlanta to this church. And I was like, okay, I'll obey. Now, anytime that happens, you better believe I'm going expecting God to do something. I'm like, okay, man, I'm going to be there. We had a guest speaker here, so it gave me a, a day off. And I went into Grace Midtown, and I'm sitting there watching a guy lead worship. And the Lord said, you're going to plant him a seed. Oh, God. That wasn't what I was expecting, was it? And I, I, I said, okay, God, I'll, I'll give. Uh, just talk to me, let me know. So he comes off the stage, sits right in front of me. And I kept hearing the Lord say, you're going to plant a seed. Don't you worry about who he is, what he does. I want your life to plant something into his life. And when you do, I'm going to do something back for you. And so I was like, okay, this is why I've come. I've come to plant a seed to this dude. The church service goes on and I finally said, okay, God, and just talk to me. I don't want it to be my emotions. I'll give him any amount I can. I don't care. Just show me what I can do. I want to help the kid. I want to be obedient to you. Listen, this is weird. I heard a voice, which I perceived to be God, say on the inside of my heart, read Ephesians 3.14. So I got out my phone and I opened Ephesians 3.14. As soon as, as soon as I put my finger on verse 14, the pastor of the church said, in closing, I want everybody to open their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We will begin in verse 14. And I immediately just tear up. Now, I don't know the mathematical probability of the energy between two guys. Going Ephesians 3.14, you pick one too. Let's see if we hit it. Probably not a good lotto there. But the moment he said Ephesians 3.14 and I'm looking at it, I get a big alligator tear, although that's a fake, but it, it means I get a tear in my eye and I start going, this is a God moment, a God moment. And in that moment of that time, in that service of another church, I encountered the very real and living presence of God talking to me in a moment where I chose the same verse he chose. And as he's reading, I'm just sobbing over a chapter that I've read over and over and over but this time it was different because God Almighty was breathing on every word and they were propping off my phone. I was like, oh my God, that's for me. That, like it had always been for me, but this time it was for me. And I'm just sobbing going, only God. And here's what's weird. Everything I was asking God to do for me in that one moment of time, driving to Midtown going, I don't really know if I want to go. Having a conversation, I don't really know if I want to sow a seed. And God's like, I'm about to blow your mind. And in that moment, I didn't, I didn't text my girls and go, girls, it was such a great sermon. The preacher, the Bible, y'all should all just read your Bible. I texted the girls and said, let me take a story about what God just did for me. And then they text back, cool, dad. And I'm like, no, it was more than cool. It was incredibly cool, you stupid children. <laughs> I wouldn't call them stupid, but you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, want, I want them to know. I, look, if the power's not real in their father, why would I ever expect it to be real in them? Why would I ever expect my children to know a real God if it's not real to me? If it's nothing more than religion, if it's nothing more than just Bible verses and just burning something for God, then, then why would I ever expect my kids to be jealous for God? It's the journey got to know God in the journey, but this is where it hurts. He has to be real in the struggle. These are the books of Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Job, by God, don't start there. <laughs> Dear Jesus, every, every hellion in the world knows Job. You can go in the middle of a jungle, they've never heard of Jesus. They know Job. <laughs> Y'all ever heard of Jesus? No, but we know Job. He showed up once. Like Everybody knows Job. But God takes us into the psalm. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Psalm. It's almost like the guy's bipolar. It's like one psalm, he loves God, and him and God are like this. The other psalm is, where are you in my deepest sorrow? You've turned your back on me. And then the next phrase is, I will praise you, Lord. With a, I'm like, what God, the guy's got to figure this out. Like, it's just an emotional roller coaster to read the psalm. You're like, oh, I'm in. The next one is like, oh, God's not even real. 
Proverbs tells you how to stay away from hookers. It's a struggle. Well, it's not a struggle for me, but some people struggle with it. Ecclesiastes is miserable. He's married to 700 women and his conclusion of life is it's futile. Uh, anybody married to 700 women would be as futile. Ah. And then the Song of Solomon is given to give us hope. Her breasts satisfy me always. Hallelujah, yeah. But those books are given to you so you can know God during the struggle of life. It's a lie. If, oh, that's harsh. It's probably not very true if people tell you if you serve God, your life will go great. Because sometimes in the middle of the struggle is where you get to know him best. When you want to tap out, you, he, he's not answering prayer right now. My money's not coming back to me. I don't see anything. The preacher said if I would cast the seed, it would come back. There's nothing coming back. I've been doing everything I know and nothing is happening. And I'm asking him and I'm praying and I'm reading and I'm fasting. And it just feels like, why have you forsaken me? Oh, in the middle of that journey. In the middle of that journey, you have to keep communing with God. We have to teach our children how to commune with God, even in the bad times. Even in the times when I don't, honey, I don't know. I have no clue why. I don't have all the answers. I don't know why this happens. But I will tell you, God doesn't always answer every prayer. And God doesn't always do exactly what you want him to do. And he doesn't always jump through your little hoops because you're quoting scripture. Sometimes you just have to grit your teeth and stand your ground and go, I will not be moved from the very thing I believe in him. And I'm going to survive this struggle. Because it's in the struggle where your children see you communing with God rather than slamming doors and throwing things and giving up and it's not even worth serving the Lord. If he's real in the struggle. I love my daughter, Victoria Kate, who was going through a hard time a few years ago. She came home and she was struggling and Robin and I were talking with her. I didn't tell her to do this. She went up to her room. She cleaned her closet out. She said, I'm making myself a prayer room. And she lived inside of her closet for probably two and a half to three months. She put pallets and pillows and she wrote with markers all over the walls, prayers she was praying, scripture she was reading. She wouldn't even sleep in her bed. You would come in, clothes were everywhere. And you'd go, where did she go? She's in her closet. It's as hard as it hurt me that my daughter was struggling that I would have done anything to just get the struggle off of her life. If there was anything I could have done, I would have done it for her. But she was in a place in her life where there was nothing I could do as a father. She's going to have to discover it on her own. I can give her a little wisdom. I can pray for her. But she's going to have to learn, honey, if you don't learn how to commune with God in the struggle, you're going to have a very weak faith. And she came out several months later with victory. Because God has to be real in the struggle. So many homes he's not, we're struggling. And rather than communing with God, we're fighting with each other. We're frustrated. And no wonder kids don't think it's real. The prophetic books, those are the prophets, all the ones we stay away from. <laughs> but they were written to tell us that regardless of what we think in our journey with God, his wisdom always guarantees success. He would tell the prophets, go tell them this, go tell them that, go tell them this, go tell them that, tell them this and tell them that, and tell them this and tell them that. Oh no, tell them this and in 300 years there's going to be a kid named Cyrus that comes Tell them that too. Just go ahead and tell them that something's going to happen 300 years from now. Write it down so they'll know when they get there. Go ahead and write this down so when you do write it down and Daniel reads it, he'll know that I'm telling the truth. Because God wants us to be able to teach our children that his wisdom is a guaranteed success. Oh, it takes time. But you better believe you're going to have to as a parent into the next generation, they're going to have to see success when we use God's wisdom. I'll tell you one thing that changed my life and it forever has changed it. I've never been the same since. I was in college, 1984. I was in English and my, you know, core classes, biology and English 101 and biology 101. I was flunking both of them. Praise God, I was very gifted. 
I was frustrated. My dad wanted me to go to college. I didn't really want to go to college. I didn't want to be a CPA. I didn't want to do, I just wanted to live life out in the wild and, you know, kind of, kind of that Tarzan kind of thing, you know, and dad's like, no, I think you need to go. And so I went to honor him. I came home and told my mother, I said, mom, I got, I'm dropping out. She said, well, what's going on? I said, I'm flunking English. I have no clue where to put commas at all. And, and I don't know whether a colon or a semicolon, I don't care. It doesn't even make sense. Somebody said, put a comma everywhere you breathe. And I got them everywhere. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's not working. I just flunked my biology exam. I need to drop out. I got two F's with the first test. So my mother, bless her heart. She says, well, sit down. We sat down 111 Valley road. We sat at the table. She got a red Schofield Bible out and she opened it up. And I was like, oh, she will preach the Bible. Oh God, does she know there's more than a Bible? I'm flunking English. And she goes, well, hmm, the book of Daniel. I'm like, nobody cares about Daniel. He's not flunking biology. <laughs> she says, the book of Daniel says that when Daniel purposed in his heart to serve the Lord, God made him 10 times wiser. And I'm like, Daniel didn't have my teacher. <laughs> Daniel didn't even speak English. He spoke Babylonian. <laughs> Thank God for a good mother that didn't kill me. She said, well, anytime she starts that way, that means listen. Well, the Lord spoke to me, Mark. Oh, man. That if you would put God first, he would make you 10 times wiser than anyone else. And I'm thinking, now that doesn't remotely help me write an essay, <laughs> take a test. So she said, son, would you be willing to take God at his word? And I said, well, I mean, I guess. I mean, what does that look like? She said, well, why don't you just pray a prayer with me that you'll put God first. He'll never be second. He'll always be first in everything you do. And, and he'll make you successful. I said, okay, I'll do that. Seems simple. I don't even have to study now. Wow. <laughs> so we prayed a prayer and she said, now, now I just want you to leave here and put God first and watch what he'll do. So I made a decision that day, 1984, that if I ever had an exam and or a test or anything else that had to do with school and there was something going on at church or with church people, I would always go there first rather than skipping to study or do exams or whatever it would. I would always go and put the Lord first. I would serve his house. I would work. So I was working and serving God's house, giving God first. I would have exams and usually I would just skip and just study and I would go to church. I would go to youth. I would go to college stuff and I'd just pour my life into God and the truth be known, it is absolutely 100% true. I graduated with honors. I went to grad school, graduated with a 4.0, went back to grad school again, graduated with a 4.0. Not because I'm so smart, not because I finally figured out English, but because God's wisdom in the matter, if you will seek me first, I will do things for you you won't even fathom. I don't even understand it to this day. But I came to know this, it's a good thing that I pass that on to my children. Honey, follow God's wisdom. They'll be successful. Well, Dad, why do I have to forgive them? Because God says so. You do it because, but I don't want to forgive them. Dad, they, I know who would. I wouldn't either. We could pray fire down from heaven on them, but that just probably wouldn't go good. <laughs> I'll end quickly. We get to the Gospels. They're the funnest stories to read because they're the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I put outside, it's the tangible, that there has to come a place in your home where you make room to experience God's power. Mom and dad, as nice as I can say this, I'm including myself too. If I make room for everything else in their life but God, I'm failing them. If I will travel the country to make sure that their sports and their hobbies and everything else and all the things that they do from cheer to gym to soccer to tennis to baseball to basketball to, and I'm just going nonstop. I mean, just nonstop, 100 miles an hour. It's great. Those kind of parents are wonderful. We tried it ourselves. 
But at the end of the day, if Robin and I don't slow down long enough to make room that my daughters can experience the power of God, what's the point? Sometimes we're so busy that we never make room for our family to experience God. Sunday's our only day off or whatever. And I'm not putting anybody down, but but what I would like to say is kids need to experience the power of God. We come to the book of Acts. I call it the book of transfer. There has to come a moment where we teach our kids how to hear God and how to hear his voice. Our kids will know everything else. They can Google it. Just Google it. And and there it is. AI at your fingertips. Just hit AI. It's there in a split second. But one thing Google cannot do is teach your child how to hear God. Oh, the hard questions. What does his voice sound like? Does he really speak? You mean to tell me you can hear the eternal God talk to you? I mean, all of that. What does he sound like? What does he... Well, it's a responsibility as a parent that I teach my kids how to hear his voice. This is usually about age 17 in our home. About the time our girls got to 17 years old, we began to pull back a little bit as parents. At least I did. I began to pull back from telling them everything to do and what they should do and how they should do it and guiding them to do it. And I began to pull back and I began to say, okay, now it's your time to make the choices for yourself. They would say, Dad, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? I said, well, it doesn't really matter what I think. I need you to just go talk to God. Tell me what you think he thinks. Because my greatest point as a parent is not to have them obey me. My greatest thing is to teach them how to hear God and obey him. And not to scare them into that. Because I'll tell you this, parent, every kid will make mistakes. Every kid will do things that they shouldn't have done. Every kid will test the waters. Every kid will get fleshly. Every kid's going to be tempted. But the goal is that the family is living in such a way that I'm guiding them to learn to hear his voice in the journey. Here's where it gets interesting. The epistles, the writings of the apostles. I think this is, I don't have time to teach on I'm going to let you go here shortly. But I think we're in a crisis here because we should teach them the importance of God's earthly community, the church. And yet we're in a generation where people are deconstructing. I don't need church. I don't need the family of God. It's organized religion. I'm like, that just doesn't go well because you believe in organized football, organized baseball, organized soccer, organized gym, organized tennis, organized swimming. But as soon as it comes to God, no, it can't be organized. We're out. God's community, the church is where, I said it a moment ago, so I won't belabor it, but the church is where I know all the aspects of God, not just my flavor. I'm the T, I need to hang out with everybody else so I get the full aspect of God. And then the conclusion, I'm going to ask the band to come up if they will. The conclusion is the book of Revelation, and it says where we teach them that all of our children have a purpose to carry the message. Your child may be on a sport team, but the goal is to carry the message. And I'm not talking about holding signs, repent, or go to hell, but that their life becomes a testimony of Jesus Christ. And we teach them how to own their 50 feet. I put it all together for you in just a screen, and I'll leave it up here. But if someone asked me, how do I raise my kids to know God? I would say, this is what God did so you could know him. He wants you to know his will. He wants to be real with you in the journey. He wants you to discover him in the struggle. He wants you to know that his wisdom is certain. He wants you to experience his presence. He wants you to learn to walk and hear his voice. He wants you part of his family on earth called the church. And he wants you to find your purpose and do your 50 feet. And if we'll do that, parents, if you'll take this, I know that was quick. I told Robin I may write a book on it, but for today, If you will learn how to do this in your journeying with your children, you will make them jealous for the God that you know, and it'll change their life. Stand up with me if you will.